For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you doing this week? Now, I want to know how much you know about digital fashion. Have you bought a digital garment for your avatar yet? Would you like to? You need to listen to this if these questions have ever entered your head. My guest is the wonderful Moin Roberts Islam. He's the Technology Development Manager at the Fashion Innovation Agency, which is headed up by Matthew Drinkwater at the London College of Fashion. They are like these brainiac, world-renowned experts. I haven't said brainiac since I interviewed Paul Dillinger, but good, Moyne is a brainiac. (laughs) I love interviewing brainiacs. Anyway, these guys at the LCF Fashion Innovation Agency are brilliant experts, renowned all over the world, and they focus on emerging technologies and how we can apply them to fashion and creative industries which is a fancy way of saying that they can garb you for the metaverse. (laughs) They can make you a digital fashion show using motion capture like they do in the movies, blending real life and digital magic. Moyne would probably not want me to say it's magic. Anyway, seems like magic to me. And they see exciting opportunities around the tech corner that could completely reimagine some of the unsustainable old ways we're used to doing stuff. But if you're anything like me, you might be a bit of a rookie on this. Confused by the terms? That's okay. Faintly terrified of Zuckerberg and his metaverse future? (laughs) You might even be a bit like, what even is digital fashion? Well, wonder no longer. In this riveting interview, you're going to hear Moyen explain pretty much every entry-level thing that you need to know about how digital fashion works, why it's exploding what brands are doing, how gaming is involved, who's buying it, and what on earth is the deal with NFTs. Plus, like I said, where sustainability plugs into all this. I'm so grateful that Moyne agreed to share his knowledge with us. He's terrific. I learned a lot on this one, and I think you will too. Please do drop us a line and let us know what you think. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, as usual, at Mrs. Press. The show's at The Wardrobe Crisis. Moin is on Instagram. You can find him at Moin Roberts Islam. That's M-O-I-N. Okay, let's get to it. So, are we going to start with questions? <laughs> We're going to start with hello, <laughs> Moin Roberts Islam. Thank you so much for joining me on this special episode about digital fashion. I'm really happy that I happen to know a really well-regarded expert in this field. And I know that you're going to answer all these questions that I've been burning to ask. So thank you for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about all these topics. Awesome. Now, we did pre-prepare this. I said that I was going to begin by asking you to zip through some context stuff just to, so we don't leave anyone behind. And if you're listening and you're brand new to this, that's okay. Not everyone is obsessed with NFTs. And I think it's fair to say that plenty of people looked at Mark Zuckerberg's kind of weird ad announcing the metaverse and were like, thank you. I'll stick to my real life for now, if you don't mind. But actually digital fashion is absolutely fascinating. I love it. I'm really intrigued. And so Moin, Let's start with that. What do we mean by digital fashion? Okay, so digital fashion is basically the creation of digital assets, so virtual garments. And these garments, they look 
behave, move, just like real garments, but they don't exist physically. So you view them through a screen, through an interface, through augmented reality, virtual reality. You, you can still interact with them, uh, and you can use those garments as you would a real garment, but in digital experiences and campaigns. And there's kind of two major routes to creating these assets. One is digital only. So you start from a bit of software, pattern-cutting software like Clo, Clo3D, Optitex, Browser. These are some sort of of the big softwares out there that brands are using to digitally design clothes. And then once you've got those patterns, you can stitch them together into a 3D model and you can view it, you can move it around, you can test the uh, fabric simulation, get a sense of how that that garment's going to hang and so on. And you'll have seen examples of that. One of the kind of more famous proponents of that is is the fabricant putting out digital garments out there. I think quite a few people will have seen those. That's kind of the digital only route. However, there are brands that have physical product already that still want to use digital assets to showcase them. So what you do then is you capture your physical asset to use a process called photogrammetry. So you take a whole bunch of photos of a physical object from a whole bunch of different angles and a clever bit of software stitches those photos together and you get a photo realistic version of that object. I just want you to say the word again. I've never heard it. Say it again for us. Photogrammetry. And the difference between what you get from the the digital only one and the kind of captured version, the photogrammetry scan, is that the digital one, you can light it how you want, you can move it how you want, you can do pretty much anything you want with it. Whereas the photogrammetry one is captured under a specific set of conditions. You can then manipulate the pose and the lighting. It's just more difficult. And then there are other areas of digital fashion, digital humans. So we'll have seen digital humans in movies for years, right back to sort of Terminator 2 and before that, where, you know, there would have been kind of a digital version of of a human being. Now, digital humans are much more prevalent. They're easy to access. Anyone can create a digital human now using the MetaHuman Creator on Unreal Engine. It's free. It's out there. And people can make photorealistic versions of themselves, of other people. And then you can make immersive experiences. You can put these physical objects into digital campaigns. You can put digital objects into the real world through augmented reality filters, which people are using on Snapchat, Instagram, that kind of thing, as video content that can be used in, in either digital realm, physical realm. There's a whole bunch of ways that brands, retailers can do immersive e-commerce effectively. Um, there was a project we ran with Pangaea just over a year ago now where we recreated the Antarctic. They were releasing their flower down jackets uh, and they wanted to explain the material science behind flower down without kind of having reams and reams of text. So we just transported the audience to the Antarctic through an interactive experience. And when you talk about this idea of digitizing ourselves, maybe people are familiar with the idea of having an avatar. I want an avatar because you could have no wrinkles and permanent makeup and look amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's a number of different ways of creating your avatar. Again, you know, you can kind of, again, do it from a photogrammetry scan or you can just create it from scratch using a tool. There's, there's a whole whole bunch of kind of different tools out there. And, and a lot of people choose to have an avatar that actually doesn't look like them. You know, it's an opportunity to be someone else in a different oh, way. Oh, like a horse. <laughs> Well, I mean, if that's where you want to go, absolutely, you could be a horse. But, you know, some people just choose to just look different, you know, have a different hairstyle, different gender, different skin colouring, whatever it might be. People just represent themselves differently. I mean, a whole bunch of people have got a different number of Instagram accounts for their different personas. Isn't it funny that I wanted to be an animal, so I'm like, like a horse or a rabbit. <laughs> that's what I choose. Absolutely. I've got a few avatars. Um, most of them do look like me to some degree. They've got nuances of me is what is the best way to describe it. But it is interesting because it's a possibility of being a better self or your highest self because you can edit out the imperfections should you wish. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and people do do that. 
and you know, fashion is one of those realms where that's absolutely going to happen. I'm pretty sure that just a few years ago when you and I first met, it wasn't mainstream. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it feels like it's everywhere. Obviously, the pandemic has meant a kind of mass move online. But apart from that, what do you think is driving this change? And can you bring us up to speed on what's happened? Yeah, so um, there's a number of different things that, that have affected things. You know, prior to the pandemic, we were talking about all of these things, digital fashion, virtual fashion, augmented reality, all those kinds of things. And brands and retailers were kind of like, yeah, that's cool. It's interesting. I'm, I'll have a look, but I'm not, not quite there. But as soon as the pandemic hit, as you said, it became a, a necessity and people needed to showcase their products at Fashion Week. They needed to wholesale them to buyers that they could no longer get, you know, physically in front of. Uh, and it became a kind of absolute need. But as well as the pandemic, We've seen other catalysts like, for example, the gaming industry. The gaming industry is huge. Revenue-wise, it's larger than the movie industry, or four times larger, I think it is. Is it? Last estimate. It's huge. And, you know, so it's it's, it's a real kind of massive industry that that fashion can tap into. And and just to give you a couple of examples of, of why that's appealing to the fashion industry, Gaming collaborations, for example, Skins. Skins in Fortnite. So Fortnite's one of those massive online games that lots of people play. And Skins are just a visual appearance of your character. You've got your avatar and you can reskin them. You can change the appearance. There were some NFL skins released quite recently and they were sold over the course of two months and they made $50 million from those sales. $50 million, Yeah, $50 million from the sale of a collection over two months is pretty, it's a pretty good return. There are branded skins. You know, so within Fortnite, we've had, Balenciaga, we've had Montclair, we've had Nike, they've all produced skins within this massive game. And then in terms of revenues, just to kind of make a point, just to really sort of hone in on why this has become big business. In 2019, Gucci made somewhere between $6.3 billion and $10.2 billion in revenue. That's a huge amount. And the, the estimates vary for a number of reasons, but let's just take it at $6.3 billion. That's a huge, huge amount of, of revenue. Fortnite, in the previous year, made $5.4 billion in revenue through the sale of digital skins. Gosh. So you've got one brand, Gucci, making physical product that makes you look, feel a certain way in the real world. And you've got Fortnite making digital products that make you look, feel a certain way in their digital world. And they're doing the same thing. They're one selling you digital garments, one selling you physical garments. And they're making pretty much equivalent revenues. And that was back in 2018, 2019. I'm really intrigued by how you frame that because... Actually, they're doing exactly the same thing, just in a different form. Absolutely. The intention behind it is the same. It's to give you that choice of how you represent yourself in a particular realm, be that the physical realm or the digital realm. And then there's also sort of social things around it. There's the concerts. Like, obviously, when lockdown hit, there were no more live events. However, there was a Travis Scott concert on Fortnite. Now, that garnered 12.3 million live views of that concert. Wow over time 45.8 million views overall i mean that's huge you cannot do that in a physical venue you can't so the appeal of these online platforms is huge you can get so many people into a space to see something at the same time much more so than you could in a physical world the revenues are equivalent you've got virtual influencers online social media social media has got a massive demand for for digital content now people are really used to seeing digital assets on their instagram feed on their facebook feed and people are playing filters for makeup on snapchat on instagram we're getting much more digitally savvy as consumers whether we realize it or not so of course brands want to get in on this because it makes obvious financial sense but let's just before we sort of get the definitions out of the way talk about the metaverse Business of Fashion calls the metaverse one of the fashion industry's hottest buzzwords of last year. 
I feel like we're not going to get away from this for introductory purposes. What even is it then? <laughs> I mean, it's a huge concept and it varies by definition depending on who you ask. But what I would say is it's, it's a fully realized digital world or a virtual world or it's a network of worlds probably is a bit more of an accurate description. And in the metaverse, users can interact, they can experience things, they can game, they can connect with each other just like they would in real life. But also more recently, another kind of string to the bow is that they can financially transact in this world so it's it's something that combines all the things you can do in real life and you can financially transact and you can have like fully fledged businesses in this metaverse essentially the aim is that it's a more immersive version of the internet so all the things you can do online you can do with much more presence much more interactivity in there and it combines elements of augmented reality virtual reality gaming the thing that sets it apart from the gaming platforms that have existed for decades is the integration of cryptocurrencies that ability to transact uh, in that space something to mention is that the metaverse isn't here it's not a fully fledged thing you can't go to the metaverse now and do things it's not this kind of massive interoperable thing that all platforms work together it doesn't that's the aim people are looking to do that and build that but it's still largely a concept and there are siloed platforms that need to start working together for it to become a, a real life. I don't want to spend this whole podcast discussing Facebook, no. formerly known as Facebook, but should we be frightened that one company is appearing to try to brand this future? Or is this just the sort of first stages of lots of players getting involved, do you think? I think it's this latter. It's it, Lots of people are already involved. Of course, Facebook wants to make a play on it because they're huge and they have a huge number of users and they have a big say in how things develop. But you also, you need you need these large players to catalyze. But there have been people, you know, playing around in the metaverse in digital fashion in, in, in all these digital realms for, for ages in cryptocurrencies. Facebook aren't the kind of arbiter of everything in that space. It's already very progressed. There's a lot of people making huge inroads, huge amounts of money, and, and had gaining a huge reputation. Facebook is there and, you know, they will be the gateway for a number of people who are new to it, who feel safe with a branded name, but they're not the arbiters at all. No. Okay. Talking of innovators, let's talk about you. So I mentioned that I met you a few years ago and that when I first thought, who can I talk to about this? You were the obvious person to come to mind, but tell us what you do at the Fashion Innovation Agency and what your role is there. Yeah, so I'm the technology development manager at the Fashion Innovation Agency. So the Fashion Innovation Agency, we're a team based at London College of Fashion, and our remit is to go out and explore emerging technologies and the way that they impact on the fashion industry. So the things we look at, we do, we try to disrupt business as usual in the fashion industry, essentially. And we look at three main areas, the way that brands make, show, and sell their collections. And we look at any technologies that can impact on those areas. So on the make side, it's a lot of this digital production that we've been talking about, digital design, um, smart materials, biomaterials. On the showcasing side, there's a lot of exciting stuff that happens at London Fashion Week. We pair up with designers and we disrupt their presentations. So we use augmented reality, virtual reality to showcase their collections in, in sort of new and innovative ways. And on the sell side, it's any technologies that have a retail application. So it can be in-store, it can be virtual trial with magic mirrors, it can be point-of-sale apps, it can be artificial intelligence for stock management. It can be pretty much anything. We cover that whole range. And my job is to go out and find those cool technologies and how they apply to particular brands and retailers. Have you gotten way more busy in recent times? You've told me in the past that it has been sometimes, depending on the brand, quite difficult to get people to commit to do it. They say, oh, that, that sounds, you actually mentioned it before, that sounds intriguing. No. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely become a lot busier. It's become mm. a lot busier. We, we, we've always been busy and we've kind of kept ourselves busy. And we've, we located the people that were interested in the space prior to lockdown, whereas since then it's become much more of an open playing field and we're getting brands of all sizes from all areas and of different levels of digital expertise coming to us, looking for different things. So it's massively opened out. Yes, we've become very, very busy. I always remember that Burberry were doing things early on. Yes. Yeah. They're definitely one of those brands that have a robust digital team, a digital asset team. They've been working with digital assets for a very long time. They've been marketing things in a digital way. You know, them, Balenciaga, a a lot of the caring group are kind of looking into these areas. A lot of smaller brands. There are a lot of digitally native brands, but pretty much every brand we speak to now is having some sort of a digital presence to not miss the boat, essentially. Can you tell us about the designer that you worked with for a London Fashion Week show over many hours where you transformed the venue over time? So that was, uh, I think, February 2018. That was a a designer, London-based designer, Stephen Tai. And the idea was, uh, essentially, you go to a fashion presentation and you, you read the show notes and they tell you about the intention. You know, we're trying to take you here, imagine this, so on, so on, view the collection and you've got the idea. And there's a whole bunch of props built to kind of try and take you into that world and what we wanted to do was kind of bypass that and take you directly into the designer's world so the designer was from Macau so what we did was we transformed a space called Durbar Court which is on Whitehall uh, a massive huge internal atrium and we transformed that over the course of two hours into a Macau street scene so there were huge neon signs and then there was sort of a, a jungle scene growing through it with birds flying around butterflies flying around and we did this all with augmented reality overlaid content over the course of two hours and we had over a thousand people come through that space and ordinarily for a fashion presentation people stay for five ten minutes and move on to the next one for this one the dwell time was significantly more than that and a number of people stayed for the full two hours and as well as having the digital overlays and transforming the environment around people we had a model to one side wearing a motion capture suit and as she was moving in real time there was a digital model on stage amongst all the real models. So I think we had 12 real models and they were interacting on stage in response to the movements of this motion capture artist. And so we had moments where they were kind of shaking hands and doing things to the virtual model with the the real models. And the virtual model did a spin on stage and because she was virtual, she doesn't have to go off stage to change her outfit. And so her outfit changed from red to blue uh, just by sort of gesture and the way she moved around changed as well you know she sort of felt different in different outfits and moved and behaved differently oh yeah you told me this how interesting yep yeah. i was wondering about how it's done and what did you call it motion capture yes motion capture yeah so i've seen pictures of this you've shown me before about how it was produced but this is really familiar in the film world isn't it this is how they do the crazy stuff they do with cgi or action sequences in lots of really well-known films but we haven't done that stuff in fashion right until now yeah so i mean that's essentially how we work we work with people from other industries we bring the expertise from these other industries like the film industry the video game industry and we bring them into fashion because those technologies have relevance in the fashion industry we're just not using them yet we're we're too busy kind of focused on our traditional craft and the way we've done things for hundreds of years. And that's great. You know, fashion has its heritage, has its traditions, but that means there's a lot of room to innovate. If you've done something the same way for hundreds of years, there's plenty of scope for something new to come in. And so that's what we do. We just look at ways that you can innovate and still be kind of sympathetic to the the past and the traditions and and mindful of that, but just Mm. elevate them to a a new, more relevant, more current way of, of, disseminating your sort of fashion storytelling to an audience that's 
digitally ready. It's really interesting, isn't it, how set in its ways certain facets of the fashion industry are. And I pulled out an interview that you'd given a couple of years ago and a quote that I loved where you'd said, fashion's been one of the slowest industries to change. And it's been a source of pride for fashion to talk about heritage processes, like, oh, we've done things this way for a hundred years. And that, as you say, can be great, but it can also prevent people from taking up new ways, right? It's sort of an excuse. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, it's not just the tradition aspect of it and the kind of craft aspect of it. I think also it's a lot of mindsets. You know, you've got people who are really high up in a lot of these, especially when they're large corporations, you know, and, and the large corporations have a lot of sway in the industry. But these people have been there for decades yeah. and they're not moving anytime soon. And you've got these sort of young up and comers underneath with coming and throwing creative ideas at them. But they're the ones that decide ultimately which of those creative ideas get chosen. And if they aren't switched on to digital processes or new, just new innovations, if they don't want to, if they want things done the way they've always been done, that's what's going to continue to happen. So it's much slower to change. You almost have to wait for these people to move on or to change their mindset. And so it's a slower process. And the fashion industry, especially when you get to scale, it's a huge beast. You've got supply chains, you've got manufacturers, you've got all these sort of things to consider and all these things that would need to change and innovate to keep up. So even if you've got someone at the top that signs it off and says, great, let's just do this new thing now, it'll take at least a couple of years for that to filter through throughout the whole production chain and how to market that to their audience, how to bring their audience along with the decision making. It's a slow thing to change, unfortunately. It's because it's such a huge beast. It's like turning a, a an oil tanker. You know, you do it through small, tiny increments. You don't do a sort of hard right and hope for it to <laughs> switch direction. The parallels with sustainability are just so obvious, aren't they, in that we're asking a huge established machine to reform the way that, in the case of, for example, social justice, it treats garment workers who are essentially still sitting in a room using machines that have been used for, I don't know, 60, 70 years. The processes haven't changed. I guess my question is, do you see a parallel there with the difficulties in introducing sustainability change? Absolutely. Yeah. Because you've got the same sort of resistance. You've got people, again, at the top who are making money. Like if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, I'm getting my cash at the end of the day. I can pay out my shareholders at the end of the day. So they don't want to rock the boat. But then when consumer demand comes in and, and insists on that change and says, no, we want these viable options. We want to know what you are doing about this. Then it starts to affect their bottom line then you start to see the changes. But you also see those changes at the very smallest level. They'll do the bare minimum to come and kind of comply until they're pushed again. Likewise, with these kind of innovations and so on, it's not maybe the resistance isn't quite so hard there mm. because a lot of the times the, the, the solutions being offered maybe can affect your bottom line in a positive way. And so people are a bit more open to it. But there is that same sort of resistance. But just a couple of things to kind of explain around why digital fashion potentially has benefits from a sustainability side yeah. just just for the audience just to kind of give some context to why why we're sort of really actively pursuing this and um, the first thing to mention is that when you're making a digital garment in clothes 3d for example pattern cutting it stitching it together and so on and getting this digital asset as usable viewable looks moves behave like a, a real garment in a virtual world that digital garment has three percent of the equivalent carbon footprint of a physical garment 3%. And it has none of the associated water usage, none of the waste materials, none of the microplastic. So the ability to make and market a digital garment potentially has a huge impact on the world. 
in terms of that carbon footprint there. And then as well as that, when you design a garment digitally rather than physically through the traditional methods, you can make instant amendments. There's no need for sampling, twirling, flying back and forth to manufacturers in Asia, no need for offcuts. And also, once you've got your digital asset, you've got it finished, you can start to collect pre-orders based on that digital sample. You can show that sample to people and say, will you buy this? Yes, I will. So before anything even goes into production, and you get a much clearer idea of demand and manufacturing numbers. And that allows you to do local manufacture more easily and so on. As well as that, digital assets can be marketed globally with a minimal footprint. They can be seen and experienced through these immersive experiences or even through e-commerce sites without the associated carbon footprint of sending samples around the world mm. for photo shoots. And also with these immersive shows, online experiences, it, it kind of minimizes the need for props, as we mentioned before. You don't have to build those props to transport people to a particular place. You can go directly into the designer's mind mm virtually and there's nothing to dismantle or throw away at the other end i mean those are just some of the advantages okay so that's the plus side what are the potential downsides from a sustainability perspective are we jeopardizing the craft aspect or potentially putting garment workers jobs in danger i mean that's a very real concern because obviously as we automate things digitize things and so on there are garment workers out there who are working uh, using traditional methods, using sewing machines and so on, a lot more sort of manual processes, whose jobs will become marginalized by these developments in technology. But it's a really tough one. Um, my family's from Bangladesh, so I feel this kind of very yeah. strong, a huge percentage of the GDP of that country is based on on the garment industry. But at the same time, if you think back to when the sewing machine was first introduced, there were people sewing by hand prior to that, making garments by hand. And this innovation came in, disrupted it, put a lot of those people out of work. But then there were way more jobs, thousands and thousands more jobs created and more people were able to start manufacturing goods at home or in a factory or wherever it may be at a much faster pace. So the kind of overall benefit of that innovation was great, but there would have been a period in between where there was a lot of disruption and a lot of sort of panic. So there's a bit of a balance and it's a horrible thing because in real people's lives, countries have to make decisions about what they're going to do in that interim. How are they going to look after their people? But it's a really big question. Not, I'm not sure the best way to answer it. No, but of course, it needs to be a managed process where ethics are considered at the outset and also systems are new systems are put in place to ensure that people are upskilled and there are pathways to move people out of jobs. We see it with, for example, the transition into renewables in the from the coal industry to renewable energy. We can't just shut down the coal mine and be like, buggy you. But I wanted to bring up some of Livia Firth's recent posts on Instagram, and I did share them with you before we recorded mine, but She's excellent. She's been on the show before, but she's quite like ballsy about this. She's worried that the metaverse and digital fashion in general is, and I quote, getting us sidetracked by shiny new possibilities. And in the process, we're forgetting, she argues, the human rights issues that continue to beset so much of the industry. I hadn't been aware of the post before. I hadn't been following, but I saw them when you sent me them. And I've thought about this long and hard. And I've got an answer mm, may not be the obvious one. So I think, with respect to Libya, I don't agree at all. Yeah. Not mutually exclusive. You can still care about one thing while learning about another. Just because COVID hit didn't mean we stopped looking after our kids or stopped caring about garment workers or stopped caring about the environment or whatever it is. And COVID's a very big distraction. 
but we're able to do all those things. I think you have to give credit to the audience. If being distracted by something new is enough to divert your attention away from global human issues, then there's a huge problem in society, uh, both on the side of the people being affected, but also on the side of the people who are working to communicate those issues to a wider audience. If that's your job to kind of make those issues known and keep people educated about them, you need to do that in a way that's effective and robust enough to be immune to these distractions. And I think another thing to, to kind of try and put this at the door of digital fashion and the metaverse, greenwashing and misinformation are already rife within the fashion industry. So blaming something new for distracting from these issues or making them worse, I think that's really flimsy. And I think there's another side to it as well. These digital tools, these ways of dissemination, the, the metaverse, it creates a whole bunch of opportunities, actually. So stick with me on this so human rights issues were here long before nfts and digital fashion even in the uk we've had them in the uk in the north of england in, in the midlands we've had some terrible things in italy there have been tri- terrible terrible treatment of foreign garment workers in italy uh, the sikhs the, the the chinese workers there but also in countries like china and bangladesh where we're more used to hearing about that and you know people rightly see it as workers rights are outweighed by the desires of brands manufacturing goods there But we can use the metaverse and digital channels to allow local businesses in those countries and local workers to tell their positive stories of change in those countries rather than focusing on historic tragedies. So, for example, in the West, we always talk about Rana Plaza. We always do. And and every time I go back to Bangladesh, people are tired of being portrayed that way. It's all we seem to want to talk about here. It's like, oh, there's poor people in Bangladesh or Rana Plaza. It's important. It is a historic tragedy and it shouldn't be forgotten. But the country's moved on. So much has changed. So we've got this really negative perception of garment manufacturing in Bangladesh. But it's also the country with the highest number of LEED-certificated platinum factories in the world. You know, in, in the top 20, sorry. So if you look at the top 20 factories in the world for platinum certification, it's got the highest number. They are world leaders in sustainable garment production. But we don't hear these stories in the West. We're more interested in focusing on the past. And that's potentially damaging, more damaging to the workers' rights in those countries, because then as people who haven't been there or don't necessarily have the time to kind of read into it, we just hear, oh, don't manufacture your goods in Bangladesh. Remember Rana Plaza. And that does the whole country a disservice. We don't say that about Italy. We don't say, look at the way they treat their foreign garment workers. It's a a terrible country. Don't manufacture there. We don't do that. We have enough Mm -hmm. common sense and realize those are terrible treatments there in those places, but that's not necessarily reflective of a whole country. We don't afford that same courtesy to Bangladesh. We just keep talking about the same things. Like, oh, Rana Plaza this, Rana Plaza that. Not look at what they're doing now. Look how much they've changed in such a short time. Look at the standard of the factories. Look at these good factories that we should be sending work to. Instead of warning people off, give these people a voice of their own so they can tell their own stories and communicate with the world without our Western bias. I want to ask you to just elaborate a bit more on something you said there, that potentially the metaverse and digital tools might allow easier pathways or might allow for people to tell different stories from their perspectives. How how would that work? I think one of the biggest things about these digital tools is that they enable storytelling. So in the same way as I described about the Stephen Tai presentation you could transport people directly to macau show things tell a story you can create whole virtual worlds you can immerse people in whatever you're you're trying to get across because you're taking the geographical or the travel barriers out 
partly, but when you've got someone online, you know, either they're viewing it through their screen, through a VR headset, just through their mobile device, whatever it is, you can bring people into a world. You can kind of take them away from their immediate surroundings and just get them into there. And you can show them whatever you want to show them. It can be based in reality. You can be modeling the world photorealistically as it is, or you can take them into a completely different, completely made up world where physics has no meaning. You know, you can do anything within those parameters. So the ability to storytell, the ability to kind of really show what's in your mind, what your your intention is kind of limitless. Mm. And also anyone that has a mobile phone, anyone that has access to a computer has the potential to tell their own story, to garner an audience in these spaces. If what you're saying and sharing resonates with enough people, you will get an audience. We've learned this through the age of social media. It's not limited by your socioeconomic status or any of those things. So this is an opportunity Mm -hmm. for people on the ground in these countries to tell their own stories and to share what's important to them and how they want to be seen. And that's kind of the point I was trying to make, that these tools are not all negative. They're not a distraction. They could be a real enabler to telling those stories from the voices of the people who need to tell it. Why do you think people are so frightened of technology? You know, I've been so scathing of Zuckerberg, but actually it probably comes from my ignorance and fear of what I don't know and what's around the corner. I think that's quite a natural response, actually, because, you know, as human beings, we're used to our surroundings we we run on routines that's what keeps us safe you know that is how we raise our kids we give them the same structure it's all predictable okay. and so on and then as adults because we've been raised that way that's what makes us feel safe so you stick with what you know as soon as something comes along that you don't know you're not comfortable with it's literally outside your comfort zone so it takes a kind of mental leap it takes a bit of bravery it takes a little bit of like right i'm going to get myself ready for this i'm going to try it out and it is it's trying something new and risking it failing and so it's a natural response it is completely i i do understand the skepticism i understand that kind of viewpoint of like oh should we be leaping headfirst into this probably shouldn't leap headfirst into anything you should give most things a go see where things fall and then decide what your next steps are from there and i think that's completely understandable to be sort of a bit reticent about it and a bit reluctant to to kind of just take it at face value because a lot of people out there are telling a story about digital this digital that nfts they're going to change the world and they're not necessarily telling the truth and they've got their own agendas Mm -hmm. so you have to take all that into account but at the same time i would say try it try these things Mm -hmm. out give them a go and it might change your opinion a little. It's the fear, I think, as well, that we don't understand fully what's being talked about and that makes us feel defensive. So if you don't understand the language or you haven't read around it properly and you feel on the back foot, then your default position is just to be like a bit like, oh, we don't want that. But let's talk about NFTs since you brought that up, which could (laughs) be one of those acronyms that people don't really understand. I count myself among them. I told you before I had to do all this research last year into what on earth they were and why people were buying Martha Stewart's photographs of portraits carved into pumpkins in limited editions. What even is it? (laughs) Okay, so uh, that's a big one. Um, But okay, so essentially NFT is an acronym, as you say, and what it stands for is a non-fungible token. That non-fungible bit just means it cannot be broken down into smaller parts and it cannot be traded or exchanged for another token. It is a unique item in and of itself and it holds its own value. And if you wanted to trade it, you would trade it for a currency and they would be worth different amounts based on the kind of the uniqueness of that unit. And so the token part of NFT, the important part, 
they're units of data on a digital ledger. A digital ledger is a huge database. It's essentially a bank statement. And these units of data allow digital content or sometimes physical content, but usually digital content, to be logged and authenticated on a cryptocurrency blockchain. So a blockchain mm. is one of these ledgers. It's a bank statement. It says person A or item X from person B at this time, at this date, for this amount on this platform. Essentially, that's what it is. And it gives you an indication of what the previous transactions were. And usually that's done on a currency called Ethereum or blockchain called Ethereum. And the idea of an NFT is it validates ownership, identity, and providence of these digital or physical items. That's it in a kind of nutshell. It's a way of tracking things. And people would be familiar with this from the art world, with digital artworks being sold in this format for a little while now. But fashion is jumping into this head first or feet first, sneakers first. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, th- th- there have been a lot of sort of fashion businesses coming out that are trying to kind of get into that space with differing degrees of success. It's a tricky one because you, first of all, have to re-educate people as with anything new. And with fashion in particular, fashion has always been tangible. It's always been physical. You put it on, you take it out your wardrobe, you put it on, you touch it, you feel it on your skin the whole day. And when you take it off, you wash it, you do all these physical things with it. So then try and change that mindset to include digital fashion and to value it in the same way or to value it to the same level, you know, financially, sometimes more, the value of these NFTs can be astronomical. It's a real mindset shift. And what you need is, I think the thing that's that's been a problematic thing is we have utility for these physical garments in the real world. It's a very tangible utility. They keep you warm. They stop you from being naked. They allow you to communicate how you're feeling or how you want to be seen to your wider audience. In the digital realm, we need more opportunities to do those same things. We need more uses for these digital garments. It's great to be able mm-hmm. to buy a digital sneaker, a digital shirt, and view it on your screen and show it to your friends on Instagram. But that's kind of where it begins and ends. So then at the point where we can start wearing those items in the real world, they'll have more value. So I think it's just at the early stages. I think that's the biggest thing to say there. Your partner is a very excellent fashion and technology writer, former fashion designer, Brooke Roberts Islam. She told me a thing, really blew my mind. We were talking about this a little while ago. I was saying, why do I want this digital thing? Because who's going to appreciate it? And she said, one day, not yet, when the internet of things is in a different space, has developed further, I would be able to decide who sees me in Chanel look number nine versus who sees me in the same digital room or physical room, who knows, in Gucci look number seven. Mm. So we're sort of projecting the possibilities. As I said before, the metaverse isn't there yet. It's not finished. It's still being built. And it's being built with these things in mind. And and digital fashion is moving in in exactly that direction that you just described there, Mm. where you've got these digital assets. They can start looking, moving, behaving just like a real garment. So at the point where you can overlay them onto a physical person, augmented reality glasses, augmented reality, for example, is something that we are much more used to now. We've got face filters. We've got all these things. We're doing it through our phones. At some point in the next five, 10 years, all the big players, Apple, Google, Facebook, all all these guys, Microsoft, they're going to be releasing augmented reality headsets, but at affordable prices in the same way as smartphones 10 years ago 15 years ago we knew what they were but not everyone had one not everyone needed one you know your phone made calls and it sent texts that's all you needed it for but fast forward to now everyone has a smartphone we can't live without it the amount of interactions the amount of content the amount of possibilities for what you can do on a smartphone mean that they are invaluable pieces of technology likewise fast forward a few years 
these augmented reality glasses will be the same. Everyone will be able mm-hmm. to interact with the world through their augmented reality glasses. They're being built, you know, and so then when you've got all this digital content that's being built up over the, you know, the next few years and, and it's already out there, it becomes useful. You can bring it into the real world. You can overlay it. I can see you in a digital outfit. You can see me in a digital outfit. I can change it at the touch of a button. The possibilities are endless. So that, yeah, we just got that little valley to overcome of the hardware and the content, but they're both coming along at at a real pace. We've run out of time, but I need to ask you about you and why and how you became a visionary in this space. But I need to just ask you very quickly for your reaction on the £7,800 digital dress. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, it was big news at the time it happened. I think it's one of those things, I think the fact that it was auctioned makes a big difference to that. And bragging rights. I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's just like NFTs. You know, people are spending tens of millions on NFTs for a profile picture. Uh, it's bragging rights. It's just to say you've got it. So, you know, with any new market, any new product, there's that kind of hype, that kind of race to get there first and to own it. But as it becomes a lot more available, as more people take it up, the market will settle and it will be a lot more affordable and within reach. At the moment, it is a playground for the rich and famous, but it's going to very soon become much more accessible, much more in reach. And the prices, there'll be a differentiation prices. There'll still be those astronomical items, but there'll also be items that are just much more affordable. All right. Tell us how you got into this. Oh, it's a long, long route. But um, I had a very, very varied career. I, I did sort of some science degrees and maths degrees when I was younger. I taught nursery kids. I worked did in you? finance. I did, yeah. I taught nursery kids for seven years. I worked in finance for five years. I worked as an artist for a couple of years. And then when I met my wife, as you mentioned, Brooke Roberts Islam, she had her knitwear label at the time. And I used to work on things with her and help her out with the business. And then uh, she had a real interest in materials themselves and creating materials and so on. And I helped her on some of those projects, got into yeah material science and, and, and a bit of, kind of smart materials, that kind of thing, which got me interested in the technical side of fashion, the kind of technology and fashion combination. And then I met the team from the Fashion Innovation Agency, um, Matthew in particular, at a number of events over a number of years, got to know him really well, loved the work that they were doing and the projects they were working on. And then luckily an opportunity came up to join the team and I, I jumped. So it's kind of a really circuitous route, but I've always been interested in technical things, technology, how things work, and the ability to apply that knowledge to a creative area. It kind of suits both sides of my personality. It's uh, yeah, a win-win. All right, one more question. Sure. You've got a lovely son, Elvis. Yeah. I guess my question is a future gazing one. Mm. And I wonder what sort of beautiful, flourishing digital fashion future you think he might witness. So I think, so he's, he's three now. By the time he is a teenager, I think we will be living in that space that I was describing a little bit earlier, where we will have augmented reality glasses or devices readily available at affordable prices that everyone can access. And the content will be there. The whole ecosystem will be there. It will be second nature. He'll wonder how we did things before. It will be a case of, you know, every surface is clickable. Everything you look at in the world, you can click on it. Some information pops up about it. There's storytelling around that. There's interaction. And, you know, there'll be much more immersive experiences. Things like, I don't know, you'll be, you'll be at a virtual fashion show. You can high-five the models as they go by, and you can feel that touch on your skin. You can pause a catwalk in real time. You can go and have a closer look at the outfit. You can walk around. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
whatever the limits are in your imagination is where it's going. The fact that things are becoming digital means we're no longer based in that physical world and we're no longer limited by physics. We can create anything. It's a much more creative world that's coming, much more whatever's in people's imaginations. And, And that ability to credibly immerse you in that is becoming a much stronger possibility. So it's a beautiful, beautiful future. Obviously, there's negative sides that too, because then people can create really horrific stuff that will be out there. And much like the real world, the pros and the cons, but there are some real awesome things coming for sure. And I, I'm excited for its future. And obviously, as a parent, nervous as well. But yeah, there's <laughs> things coming. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much, Moin. This has been absolutely riveting. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Claire. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.